text of the sermon is the 41st chapter of the book of Isaiah. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to the 41st chapter of Isaiah. If you can find Psalms, the Psalms, right in the center of the Bible, you're, half, you're almost there. You can just turn a few pages to the right and you'll find Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. My own quiet time, personal quiet time, I'm uh, studying or reading through the, the book of Isaiah. It is a rich Old Testament book. In fact, it's called the Gospel of the Old Testament. And uh, if you have some time to do a little Bible reading, you might want to look there after you've, after you've read the Gospels. I'll read in a moment verses 17 through 20. But before I do that, I want to ask some questions. I'd like a show of hands if, um, if you agree. How many of you this morning believe that America needs revival? Would you lift your hand? The nation needs revival. All right, that's quite a number of people. How many of you believe that your church... I know this morning I got up, I thought there would probably be more people watching on television today than ever before because of the weather. So if you're home, you lift your hand if you so agree. How many of you believe your church needs revival? Lift your hand. Now that's a lot of us. And we're kind of all in agreement this morning. Be careful now at the third question. How many of you believe that you need revival? Would you lift your hand? That's a great number. Now the most crucial question of all. What's keeping it from happening? I mean, who's the culprit, you know, that's keeping that from happening? Where's the bottleneck? Not where's the beef. Where's the bottleneck? Is the sovereignty of God so arranged that God will not move in time until He just decides to do it regardless of what man does? Or is the sovereignty of God so related to the will of man that God says, I will if you will. I think religious history and perhaps secular history are in agreement that God waits these movings that we call revival upon man. That when the conditions are just right, God just moves in and does something that man can't take the credit for. That it is true, I think, that, that God always does His office work when man does his homework. And that God works upon a prepared altar. Now it is true, of course, that we do need revival. I suppose that if poor conditions are the, re- the requirements, the prerequisite for revival, we'd be the prime candidates for revival. I agree with the person who said that there are four reasons why we need a revival. First is the corruption of the nation. That's one reason we need revival. Second is the carnality of the church. That's another reason. Third is the complacency of our people. The third reason. And fourth, the closeness of the coming of the Lord. I agree that those are reasons why we need revival. And I agree with Manly Beasley that the only thing that's going to keep us from being a reproach unto God until Jesus comes, from now until Jesus comes, 
is a revival, a a personal revival in our lives and a corporate revival in our churches. Don't you just yearn for that? And haven't you prayed, Lord, help help us to know, prove that worship is a two-way street. We have worshiped you. Now move in and commit yourself to where we worship. And haven't you prayed, Lord, show that you are about something and can do something that is greater than man can do and and something for which man cannot take the credit. And I'm convinced that God is just waiting in the wings to do that. I'm just convinced that God is waiting in the triforium and longs to step in and do something miraculous in our place. Well, what's the bottleneck and who's the culprit that keeps that from happening? I think that when the Spirit of God moves upon the heart of His people and causes them to yearn for a spiritual revival, that they're just automatically drawn to certain passages of Scripture that seem to pledge God's miraculous workings in their behalf. And this text this morning is just such a passage. Verse 17, The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none. And their tongue is parched, the King James has it, and their tongue faileth with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open up rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry lands fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress, and they, that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well, that the compassionate hand of the Lord has done this, and the Holy One of Israel has created it. And when you study the history of revival, you're going to find a unanimity of agreement that God's people can claim these promises for themselves at any time. And so here we are, trapped by the trivial. I'm going to say something here. I'm hooked on this game, Trivial Pursuit. I mean, do y'all like that game? Perhaps you got one for Christmas. It's as, you know, it's as big a craze as the Cabbage Patch Kids in the adult world, you know, our, our, our level. And I got me one for Christmas, and I'm trapped, I'm, I'm, I'm um, hooked on that game, Trivial Pursuit. I love it. I was thinking about it the other day, and I was thinking about this, that that's the game most of us are playing, just by another name. In pursuit of the trivial, the things that don't really matter. It's the name of the game in the church. It's the name of the game in our lives. And here we are, trapped by the trivial and deadlocked by details, and yet there is a yearning that God will just step in from the wings and do something in our midst that only God can do. So I want you to look at this text with me, and I want to try to whet your appetite this morning concerning revival, a personal revival, and a corporate revival. And I want to speak to that issue for the next few Sundays. 
I want you to look first with me at the desperate situation facing God's people. One is struck immediately with a statement, the afflicted and needy seek for water and there is none. What is he talking about there? I want you to analyze that with me for a moment. He's talking about a fundamental resource, something that you cannot do without, namely water. In its detailed article on water, World Book Encyclopedia says, Without water, nothing can live. Everything, plants, animals, human beings, must have water or they will die. Everything must maintain, the article says, its... its, uh, normal supply of water or there will be death. Man can live for 30 days or more without food, the article says, but he can live no more than a week without water. And if the body loses more than 20% of its normal water content, it dies painfully. What he was saying when he said, the poor and needy seek water, he's saying that they seek a fundamental resource of life that they cannot live without. Have you ever noticed how many times the Scripture takes this picture of this fundamental physical resource and uses it as a picture of the fundamental spiritual need of all people? The psalmist says, as the deer pants after the water brook, even so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for thee, for the living God. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now notice the symbolism. The psalmist was describing or identifying a basic fundamental spiritual need. And he identifies that basic fundamental spiritual need as soul thirst. And he identifies the fundamental resource for that soul thirst, God. And he cries out to God to be satisfied. Without physical water, there is no physical life. Without God, there is no spiritual life. But you know our fundamental, you know our essential difficulty? We think we can get along pretty well without Him. That's so in the church. I mean, we have our gadgets and our gimmicks, our programs and projects, our buildings and our budgets. Carl Bates said that if God withdrew Himself from the average Southern Baptist church, 90% of what we do we'd continue doing, never even miss Him. And we think we can get along pretty well, pretty well without Him in our own personal lives. You know, there's something that is worse than atheism. It's a practical atheism. One denies the existence of God. The other defies God's rightful place in one's life. One says God does not exist. The other says God exists and then live like He doesn't. And that's the thing the Bible deals with. Have you ever noticed that the Bible does not deal with atheism at all? I mean, the Bible doesn't set out to prove the existence of God. It just assumes God's existence. And there's only one verse of Scripture that really deals with atheism. And it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Then it goes from there. But from the beginning of the Bible to the end of it, it deals with that insidious 
atheism that's called practical atheism, that defies God's rightful place in one's life. Is He your fundamental resource? I mean, really? Well, how much time do you spend in prayer or in His Word? He's not only talking about a fundamental resource, He's talking about a total lack. He said, the poor and needy seek for water and there is none. That's kind of discouraging. It's kind of discouraging when you get your mind set on something that you really want and you go to the store and the guy says, the clerk says, well, I'm sorry, sir, we've sold out of that. There is none. It's even more serious when you find out that there is something in life that you can't do without and there is none. I mean, you can't get along too well without oxygen, air to breathe. But suppose that if somebody came in here this morning and said, I've sealed up all of the air vents in this auditorium, and when you breathe up all the air that's in here now, there will be none. There'll be a few of us trying to get out those stained glass windows. It doesn't matter they cost $500 a piece. That'd be pretty serious business, wouldn't it? What he's describing when he says, and they sought for water and there is none, is a total lack of the fundamental resource that is necessary to preserve life. They were in a desert without water. Now I'm convinced that God in His providence allows us to come to those places in our life that are dry and to to come to those droughts in our life. I mean, there are times... When Bible study, and pr- Bible study and Bible reading is dry, isn't it? I mean, if you agree with that, you know, those times ever happen in your life? There are times when prayer itself is lifeless. There are times when we gather together as God's people and there are no showers of blessing. There are times when the normal means of grace appear to no longer satisfy There are times when the church itself looks like a vast desert. Now, we need to be honest and candid with God and just tell Him, Lord, I am in a period in my life of dryness. My Bible study is dry. My prayer life is lifeless. I come to God's house and nothing happens. We have our campaigns and conventions, our crusades and conferences, but Lord, we need water. We need your presence. Not only is he talking about a total lack, he's talking about a critical stage. He says, and their tongues failed for thirst. It's the picture of a man going across a desert and he's so thirsty that his tongue swells in his mouth and he can't speak. He can't even cry out in his agony. He can't even defy the vultures circling overhead. It's the picture of a man who has only a matter of hours to live. Now, if you study the history of revival, you'll find that God sometimes allows us to come to those stages. For listen, my friend, revival happens when our thirst for God becomes excruciatingly real and even desperate. And so if you read the 40th chapter of Isaiah, you will find that the withering of God precedes the watering of God. 
And it's when a person comes to the realization that he's dry and empty and nothing is happening in his life apart from what he himself is able to create. And he's desperate when he cries, Oh God, give us revival, that God brings revival. Now the text moves on to the dramatic solution. Not just the desperate situation, but the dramatic solution. God said, I'm going to take care of this problem. And He says it in general ways, this way. He said, I will answer them myself, and I will not forsake them. The two general ways He says He's going to solve the problem. And then He becomes specific, and He says, I'm going to open up rivers on the mountains, I'm going to turn valleys into springs, and deserts into pools, and there's going to be water everywhere. Now, I want to look at the general promise. He said, I will answer them myself. Does it appear to you sometimes that your prayers are unanswered? I mean, are, are, are you among us who sometimes feel that we pray and pray, and God, if He, doesn't, if he, if he hears, he at, least, he at best He ignores if God is not dead, He's deaf. You know, we, we pray and heaven seems like brass. I mean, there are probably some of you here this morning who have prayed for revival for all of your life. I mean, for a commitment of God to this hour and to our lives. You may have prayed for that for a lifetime. I'm going to bury a saintly lady this next week who I'm sure has sat in this church for decades and prayed for God to do something in this place for which we cannot take the credit. Now I know two things this morning. I don't know much, but I know two things. I know first that you can pray perhaps for a lifetime and never see revival. You may die and never see revival in your lifetime. That has happened to many. I know the second thing that the only way revival will ever come will be through the prayers, because of the prayers of God's people. Revival is the answer of God to the agony of man. Revival is the response of God to the request of man. Revival comes on the wings of man's prayer. Now, you may pray for a lifetime and never see revival, but you will never see revival if you do not pray for revival. In the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, Peter and John are arrested and they're taken by the Sadducees for performing this miracle at the gate beautiful, the temple. And there they threaten Peter and John and tell them, now, if you're going to preach anymore, we're going to kill you and beat them and sent them back. Now their friends, the church, was gathered together praying for Peter and John, and Peter and John came in and gave them the report. They said, those folks let us, let us loose, but they said if we preached anymore that we were going to be killed. And the church went to prayer. Immediately they went to prayer. And the church began to call on God, the Creator. Read that in the fourth chapter. And then the church said, God grant us boldness to speak in the name of Jesus. And the Scripture says, the place where they were was shaken. In the 1950s, 
a revival began to sweep across Wales. A contemporary evangelist during that time was named John Duncan. He's still alive as I understand it. Spoke at the seminary when I was a student there. Duncan said that revival was spreading across Wales and he as an evangelist and other preachers went out to a little village to hold services. And when they got there, there was resistance to revival. Now you know resistance comes to revival comes primarily among God's people, really. I mean the pagan out there doesn't resist it, strange as it seems. He said there was resistance to revival in that church. He said he preached and it was cold and lifeless and dead. And after the service was over, he said one of the old laymen in the church who had been praying for revival for all his life said, well, I think it's time for us to pray. And so they went over to his house, the pastors, the preachers, and the laymen, and they went to his house for prayer. And he said, we all were in a circle and, and all of us were praying. The preachers prayed. And he said, we went around the circle, came to the old man and he started praying. He said, John Duncan just kind of said it nonchalantly. He said he prayed 45 minutes. I mean, just like it was, you know, like two minutes. He prayed 45 minutes. Then he said, he just kind of shifted gears and he started agonizing to God in prayer. He said, Lord, your honor is at stake here in our village. You've made a promise in your word that you would send revival to our village. Your honor is at stake. Your word is at stake. Now you come and honor your word. And he said, John Duncan said, the place where we were was shaken. He said, the things on the mantle toppled off and there was this shaking of the building." And he said the old man finished his prayer and we stepped outside and lights were coming on like Christmas trees all over the village and people were streaming out of their houses coming in the direction of the old man's resident and they were saying, Can you tell us, sir, how to be saved? And that night in that village, said John Duncan, there were 60 people who were saved. Now I'm going to tell you this morning that revival never comes except on the wings of the prayers of God's people. Then he said, secondly, I will not forsake them. Now the appropriateness of that promise may be a little nebulous on first glance. It looks like a general promise of God that He's going to be with us. It's much more than that. When you look at that, it says, the God of Israel will not forsake. In other words, He's saying, the covenant-keeping God will not forsake. The God of grace will not forsake His people. Now, there is nothing in, God, in us that would cause God to hang around with us. I mean, is there anything in you that would cause God to hang around here with us? Spurgeon told his students when he was uh, teaching uh, in his school over in, in England, he said, it's a good thing that God chose me, for it was, if it were left up to me, I would have never chosen Him. What Spurgeon meant was that redemption and the activity of God in human life is from the beginning to the end an act of grace. So that God hangs around us because of His grace, not because of anything in us. Now, what is he saying when he says, I'll not forsake them? He's saying, you can shut the door to me and I'll keep on knocking. You can turn your back on me and I'll keep on tapping. 
You can close your ears to me and I'll keep on calling. You can run from me and I'll keep on following. For I am not going to be turned back or defeated by your sin. That was Israel's hope and it is ours. And there's a beautiful Old Testament parable of that. And God told Jeremiah, he said, go down to where the potter works on the wheel. And he watched as the potter took the clay and it was marred in his hand. And so the potter made another vessel, the scripture says. And that's a marvelous parable of the indomitable patience of God. For he had every reason to throw that clay on the, on the scrap heap and say, that clay is of no value, it's no good, I can't use it, I'll get some new clay. But he didn't, and that was the gospel to Jeremiah. Where God took that clay, the fragments of it, and he took the pieces and molded it and put it back on the, on the, on the wheel and worked again. And he said to himself, I can, I must, I will make something noble out of this clay yet. Now why didn't God give up on Jacob a long time ago? And why didn't heaven disown David for his dark and terrible deed that made his name a byword in the land? And why didn't he let Peter sink after his base denials? And why wasn't Saul the persecutor blotted out of the book of life forever? Because there is nothing as persistent and stubborn as the grace that wills to save. And that's our hope as it was Israel's. God said, I'll not let you alone. I'm going to keep on knocking. I'm standing in the wings and I want to do a miracle in this place and I'm not going to be turned back by your sin and your rebellion and your, and your stubbornness. And then he gets specific. Now I want you to hang in here with me. You know, I started to make this a three-part, a two-part sermon. I may have to yet. This got a little time. I wish I had more. Watch this. He said, I'm going to open up rivers in the high places and I'm going to make springs in the valleys, and I'm going to turn the desert into pools. And you have to look. If, if you took verses 18 and 19, you could summarize them with two words. The summary of verse 18 is torrents, and the summary of verse 19 is trees. And when you put this up against verse 17, where he says... They poor and needy seek water and there is none. And then verse 18 said, I'm going to open up rivers and fountains and pools, water everywhere and every drop to drink. Once there was scarcity and now there is plenty. Once there was desert and now there blooms in that desert abundance of water and trees. You know what he's saying? He's saying God can do more in 10 minutes than we can do in 10 years. With all the human effort of man, everybody in this church working together, it God can do more in 10 minutes than we can do in 10 years. He's saying that the most important thing perhaps in your life is to know when to quit and let God begin, when to stop and let God start. And if you look at that text geographically, you will see that what he's saying is that, that, that the water is going to touch every Every inch of space in Palestine, from the high places to the low, from the mountains to the deserts, there is water, there, is tar there are torrents of water everywhere. Listen, my friend, when revival comes to a church, it doesn't stop in the church. It touches everything. When revival comes to North America, it will affect North Africa. 
When revival comes to the First Baptist Church of Durant, it will affect all of Durant. When revival comes to your life personally, it will affect everything that touches you. It will affect your work and your play and your home. It, reflect, it, 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 it uh, affects everything that touches your life. And he said, I'm going to make that desert blossom with trees. I wish I had the time to talk about it. There is utility there. I mean, some of those trees were for shade, some were for fruit, some were for oil. But they were all there doing their, uh, fulfilling the purpose of God. There is unity there. He lists seven trees and they're all growing there alike. Doesn't matter what kind of soil there is, all of them are growing there. They get along quite well. There is unity there. And when you put the torrents and the trees together, you get first, the, the first psalm. And, and a man that walks with God, he said, is like a tree planted by rivers of water. And He brings forth fruit in His season. When revival comes, your life is fruitful. His leaf will not wither. Nothing can wither you down, not even the pressures of life. And whatever He does prospers. And this church will prosper. And this miracle will happen. And this building will be paid for. When revival comes, the dramatic solution to man's desperate situation. Look finally at the desired sequel. He said, I want to send revival. I want to step from the wings and do this for two reasons. So that you can see my compassionate hand and my creative power. Did you see it? Then they'll see and understand that it is my hand. My, my friend, listen to me. Revival is the intervention of God in man's life. It is the hand of God in man's life. It's God at work. Now you've got to read that in the Hebrew to understand what he's talking about hand. In fact, one translation has my compassionate hand. Now not being sacrilegious or blasphemous, this is what God is saying. I want to reach down my hand. I want to give you a hand. I want to give you a hand in your struggle with your peers. I want to give you a hand in that problem in your marriage. I want to give you a hand in that financial matter that's eaten away a hole in your gut. I want to give you a hand. I want to reach down my hand. A friend of mine used to work with troubled students in a, in a school in Fort Worth. He said he taught these troubled kids, kids that had been in trouble, were back in school. He said, I'd walk down the hall, I'd see one, I'd start to reach out, put my hand on his shoulder, maybe pat him on the back, he'd flinch. He said all he'd ever known, all these children ever knew was a father would backhand them, you know, and slap them with their hand or cuff them around a little bit. He said it took me a whole semester just to be able to reach out and touch them. Some people have the idea that all God wants to do is backhand us and cuff us around. He said when revival comes, you'll see that I have a compassionate hand. I want to help you. I want to be to you what you desperately need. I want to reach out my hand. He wants to do what God said to Moses he would do. He said Moses was worrying about how they were going to drink, have fine water in the desert. And God said to Moses, Now you will see if the arm of, the God, of God is too short. You're about to see that I'm going to do what I promised. Not only his compassionate hand, he wants us to see his creative power. His creative power. Folks, He wants to bring something out of nothing. That's what creation is. 
creative power is when God does something where there are no resources from which to work. He wants to create something out of nothing. He wants to do a miraculous thing in the church. He wants to do something here that, for which there are no resources of man to do. He wants to do that which only God can do so that we can stand back and say, it's the power of God. Pastor Paul Lynn said they found a body of a woman, a skeleton of a woman in the Mojave Desert. She scribbled a note just before her death. She said, I'm running low on water. I don't think I can hold out much longer. They found her two miles from the place in the Mojave called Surprise Springs where water could be found in abundance. Um, I think we might be just two miles from water in abundance. I think that God is waiting in the wings to give us the fundamental resource of life. Now the scripture in the Old Testament I want to leave with you is this. The eyes of the Lord ran to and fro in the land in order to prove himself helpful is one translation to prove himself perfect to those whose hearts were totally committed to him now watch this does the eyes of the Lord run to and fro in this congregation and does God say there's one and there's one, and there's one whose heart is totally committed to Him. I'm going to prove myself perfect. But there is another Old Testament passage that says, And God sought a man in the gap to stand and in the hedge and make up the gap and found none. I ask you this morning, are you part of the bottleneck? Are you part of the cause or the solution? Let's pray together. Father, in our heart of hearts, we long for personal renewal. We confess do some of us that our prayer life is lifeless and our Bible reading is dry and our worship is devoid of showers of blessing. But our soul thirsts for God, for the living God, and our flesh yearns for you as in a dry land where there is no water. Lord, Step in. Show us your compassionate hand, your creative power. 